Well, good morning, church. Uh, Today, we are continuing our sermon series uh, called The Prayers of the King as we examine the prayers of Jesus throughout the gospel story from the beginning to the end, how he prayed, what he prayed for, and above all, how God the Father answered the Son. If you're going to be reading along this morning, we're going to be reading out of Matthew 26. And a little recap, the last couple Sundays, our scripture readings have really focused in on the last week of Jesus's earthly life, the Passion Week. He entered Jerusalem for the last <coughs> Sorry. He entered Jerusalem for the last time and in a deep and painful prayer, he lamented and prayed for the city, the rebellious people, knowing that only in a few short decades Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be raised, and the Jewish people sent into exile because they had rejected the Messiah, because they had rejected their king. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread began, and the Passover meal was kept, and Christ gave thanks to prayer and God for his broken body that would soon happen, for his spilt blood that was getting right around the corner. He broke the bread and gave thanks, signifying what kind of death he would die. Jesus gave thanks for what was going to happen to him, because he knew it was necessary for the atonement of his people, and to usher in the new covenant. And after that clandestine supper, Jesus led the disciples on a midnight walk. They walked along the way, and they talked about many things, mainly about his departure, which was only a few hours away. And Jesus, in that time, he prayed. He prayed that the Son would be glorified, the church would be sanctified, and that all those who would believe in the future would be one and be in the faith and be united. He prayed for us today. He prayed for all believers of all time. And their midnight walk ended in a garden, an ancient olive tree grove, a place called Gethsemane. That is where our story picks up today. If you can and are you willing, please stand for the reading of God's holy gospel. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. The word of the living God says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, to the three, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again for a second time, Jesus went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. 
Father God, I pray that you bless the reading of your word. I pray that you would help us connect with our Lord in this time of anguish he's in. Help us understand what he was going through. Help us relate to that. Give us ears to hear, a mind to understand, and a heart willing to obey what you have for us today through this scripture. Use the word to shape us, mold us, and change us to be more like your son. For his name's sake we pray, and God's people say, amen. You may be seated. Church, what is quickly becoming evident, if you've been following along the last couple of weeks and attending Sunday service and listening to the sermons, what is quickly evident as we read this passage is that the triumphant prayers of Jesus that he just had on the way to the garden have quickly now turned into the prayers of a dying man. Painful prayers, guttural prayers, prayers of anguish, those deep pains that you almost don't know how to express. Three times the Lord Jesus, our God King, prays something like this, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Lord, not as I will, but as you will. The cup Jesus is referring to is the painful and deadly cocktail made up of all the sin of humanity from the beginning of the gospel story, from the beginning of creation to the very last day before and the moment before he returns. It's made up of all of humanity's sin and God's just wrath against it. And all the agonizing steps from the beginning of creation to the actual moment of crucifixion that will be entailed in this gospel story. This is the painful cup Jesus is talking about, this cup of suffering that he was destined to drink. For it was written in the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the writings, the entire Old Testament church bears witness that the Christ should suffer and die and on the third day be raised to life and enter into his glory. Yet even in this painful time of reflection and anticipation, even though the circumstance is out of Jesus' hands, out of his control to some degree, and things feel like they're spiraling and falling apart, the Son of God still prays. And he prays perfectly, and he prays the ultimate prayer. He prays God's will be done. That the Lord Almighty, that the creator of the heavens and the earth, that his and his will only, his desire only, will be accomplished in Jesus' life. This is a, a conundrum for us because we see Jesus and we know he's the son of God, but the incarnation, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man and we see this happening now. And it leads us to our main point today about this understanding of God's will. And it's simply this, it's reflected in the way Jesus prayed, is that God's will is always first. Church, let me hear you say it. God's will is always first. Always. Not some of the time. Not when life is good. Not only when you're really sad and things are terrible. God's will is always, always, and an infinite always, first. Not my will, not your will, but God's good and gracious and glorious will 
must always be first in our minds, in our hearts. His desires come before my desires in all of life's circumstances. His will needs to be the first and last thing I pray for. And this is no small matter. I mean, we can talk about praying for God's will all we want, but this is no small matter. It's directly tied to salvation and the gospel. Jesus tells us that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, like, Jesus, I love you, I'm on your team. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, who acknowledges me, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you believe Jesus' words on the seriousness of the will of God? He says, if you want to be with me and you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to do the Father's will, period. There is no Christian life separate from the will of God. That's, that doesn't make sense. So this comes down to an issue of faith, an issue of trust. When life is falling apart and circumstances seem bleak, do we trust that God's will is still good and necessary for us to seek and obey? Or will we determine our own course? Will we be like Adam and Eve? And when they ate the fruit, it says their eyes were opened and they became aware they were naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? That one simple picture in the garden represents the conflict between your will, your eyes are open, you see yourself, you become the judge, or God's will. That's the conflict behind all this we're talking about. Either God's will is coming first or your will is coming first. And as we just read the words of Jesus, if that's what you're going to choose, you have no place in the kingdom. But God's will is better than that for you. God's desire is for you to be a part of his kingdom, to trust him and obey him. And church, our suffering king demonstrates this reality perfect of God's will coming first. For Jesus prayed God's will that the Father's desire alone would be done despite his devolving circumstances. And that's what we're going to focus this morning. He keeps praying the same thing, but every time he prays it, another layer of tragedy like just keeps building up on Jesus. Like one after the other, we're going to see this scene. is like things are crumbling. Jesus' hour is near. Things are crumbling under his feet, it seems. And he's in this moment in this garden, and it just keeps getting worse. It's snowballing. Three times he prays, and each time it's just a layer of misery added on top. And it begins when he takes aside his inner circle, the chief three apostles, Peter, James, and John. And he says, like, come with me, sit with me, and pray with me. And this scene, this garden scene, is actually in parallel to the Transfiguration Mount, the day he revealed his deity to the same three men. He was transfigured before them. They went up high on this mountain and Jesus revealed his glory to them. It says he shined bright like the sun and the cloud of glory came down on the mountain and the father spoke to them and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. These three men experienced the deity and glory of Christ. They saw it with their eyes. They may not have understood the vision, but they were there. They experienced the divine son of God. But now, in this garden called Gethsemane, this ancient olive grove, they're experiencing the exact opposite. They're experiencing the humanity of Christ. And he says these words to them. He says, my soul, like, let the words of Jesus sink in. He says, my soul, my, the substance of whom I am, like the heart of everything that makes me, me. 
is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. The Son of God is like, the words are so clear. He's like, I'm so sad. It's like, I want to die. Pray with me. Sit here with me in my moment. And he's inviting these inner three to experience that now. The same three saw his glory, and now he's inviting him into this vulnerable time. Because church, it was at this hour that the word of God was going to be fulfilled. The suffering servant depicted in the prophet Isaiah is going to happen to Jesus. The clock is winding down. The Son of God is going to die for sins really soon, and he knows this. Hear the words of Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. It says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this figure, this Messiah figure, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Church, in this garden, in this moment, there is no brightness or golden rays. There is no cloud of glory. There is no reassuring voice from the Father saying, this is my son. There's none of that. There's just the dark and dreadful night. The long night of the soul. Jesus is at his 11th hour. And a heaviness and a burden and sorrow that no human will ever fully be able to comprehend or fully relate to was upon the Son of God. And yet, despite this sorrow, despite the enormous task in front of him, despite the prophecy that's going to be fulfilled and the crushing sorrow and anguish that's upon him, he still prayed. He prays for God's will, even in his sorrow and despair. Which teaches us an important lesson about God's will being first, church. God's will, it even comes first, even in the most painful, horrible, gut-wrenching parts of our lives when we can't see or think clearly because of the pain. God's will still comes first. Whether it's disease, death, divorce, tragedy, financial crisis, war, the most hellish points of the human existence, the lowest points where we, like Christ, sorrow to the point of death. Let me just ask you one question. Have you really ever been so broken by circumstances of life, whether you cause it or you're a victim or whatever, have you ever really just... Just wanted to die? Have you ever just ached about life and was just like, I would rather be dead than go one more step? If you have, you're in the company of Jesus this morning because that's what he's going through. He very self said it, like my sorrow to the point of death. You know, I'll be honest, as I was reading this, trying to be connecting with the Lord in the scripture, 
you know, letting this devotionally sink in my heart. I've been pretty sad in life. I don't think I've ever been so sad that I wanted to die, though. Not like that. So I speak to you as a spectator more than through personal experience. But I guarantee if we run around this room and we get testimonies, I bet you there are people here that can share some gut-wrenching stories where they'll be honest. They'd be, you know, I know I'm Christian. I'm not suicidal, but I much rather would have just died and been with Jesus than dealt with life. I bet that's true for many, many people. And if that's you this morning, you are in good company with the Son of God. But even in that state of sorrow, even in that lowest depression or bleakness or that bottomless black hole, whatever, how you want to describe that experience, the truth still remains the same, doesn't it? We need to pray. You need to pray when you don't feel like it. You need to pray through that sorrow. You need to pray God's will is done. You need to have your prayers on God's will as the center and the foundation, asking him to do what he thinks is best for you and for us in that situation. Praying for God's will to be done, church, is basically just an affirmation of trust. Trust that God is still in control despite the awful hellish things you're going through, the things you would rather never experience, the things you never thought would happen to you, the things that crush the human spirit, that literally sap the vitality out of you to the point where you don't want to live anymore. Jesus says, in his example, we still need to pray, seek the Lord, and trust him and trust his goodwill for us. Because God is good all the time, and his goodwill is always for his people. The Greek word for God's goodwill is called his eudikia. So if you ever hear someone having a theological jargon talk, or whatever, and they say, God's eudikia, that's what they mean. God's good pleasure. God's good will. And God has a good will for the people of God. And despite the pain you're in church, whatever's going on in your life, God is still in control, and he alone commands your destiny. Truths like this is what I like to call a spiritual vaccine for the evils that you will face in this life. Many of us may not face the soul-crushing things talking about, but we all will face brokenness sometime. We all will be grossly disappointed sometime. We all will want to give up sometime in life. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're ready to quit this Jesus thing because it's just too much. God's just too demanding on me. I can't keep loving the one that I feel like is just destroying my life or letting bad things happen to me. Maybe that's you today. Hold on. Keep praying for God's will because he's not going to let you go. Truth like this is necessary for the Christian life because we're told we're going to suffer, guys. Maybe not as bad as the martyrs in some part of the world. Maybe you have a really comfortable life. But the Bible tells us plainly, all who follow Christ will follow in his steps. And the life of Jesus, as he tells us regularly, the apostles, the whole New Testament, makes it super clear those who follow in the path of righteousness will live in a, an opposed life. You have a real enemy out there, the devil. You have the world that's opposed to you. And you have your inward sin and temptation that wants to rip you out of the hands of God. Truth like this keeps us settled that God's will comes even before what I think, what I feel, and the very real pain we experience in life. It's something you resolve while it's called today and not in that painful moment. 
Because when the roaring waves come and the sorrows like sea billows roll, what are you trusting in? What's your anchor? Is it God's goodwill? Is it his love and compassion for you? Or are your eyes fixed on the circumstances and the pains of life? What keeps you in the faith and from turning your back on the Lord? Trusting in God's will. How are you going to persevere in pain, Christian? Trusting God's will. Praying for God's will. When you don't know what else to pray in those moments, pray for God's will. Jesus did. Three times. And the best biblical illustration other than Jesus, as many of you know, is Job. There once was a man named Job, and he suffered greatly. His story is recorded in the Bible, and it's the perfect example of what it means to trust God's good, gracious, glorious, and loving will, even at your lowest. The very first chapter of Job, y'all, in one day it says all of his children were killed, and all of his business and livelihood was destroyed and lost. Like, he lost it all in one day, and then quickly after, he lost his health. He, like, the guy was torn down, and the Bible records that God allowed it to happen. And yet, here what Job says, Job says, in light of all the evil he's facing. Job 1, 20 and 22 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This man, Job, who we know very little about, because the very beginning of the book is just his suffering and the loss he faces, clearly shows here he has resolved in his heart from the beginning that God's will is good, and he's, God's will is for him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He'll repeat many times through this book, even though we know Job has his trials and he goes up and down and says crazy things here and there. He's steadfast in that somehow he's like, I know God is still, still good. I know that the Lord is this. He's still good. And he even says, should we receive only good from the Lord and not evil? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And regularly the book of Job will say something like this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. God's will is never evil, and it's never wrong. But I guarantee you, if your Christian worldview is not mature, God's will includes suffering. The whole Bible includes that. You can't escape it, nor should you. God's will, even though it's good for his people, includes suffering. So Job trusted. He trusted God's will, and he responded correctly to what happened to him. He just confesses the truth. God's in control. His will is being accomplished. And this mighty God is still worthy to be praised. And since this example is left for us also, this is still true for you and me today, church. Today, we must seek, pray for, and desire his good will, his holy providence, no matter what type of pain we are in. No matter what you're going through, Christian. No matter how awful it is. And it can be pretty terrible. I mean, I'm sure the stories can be really terrible. God's still good, and his will is still good, and we're still commanded to seek it and trust it and follow it. And the Psalter, the Psalms, 
are filled with statements like this. You can't read the book of Psalms and escape that God allows suffering and victory in the same breath sometimes. That's why I'm telling you, be in the book of Psalms regularly. You'll see it. It's so evidently clear. Listen to Psalm 66, 8 through 12. It says, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us, the people of God. You, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid, this is, remember, he's talking to God here. He says, you, God, laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out into a place of abundance. Church, God may lead us through fire, and he may lead us through the flood, but there's always an end. It's that place of open abundance. And all of this is according to his eudikia, his good pleasure, his good will for his people. Do you believe that? So whether we live or die, through hurts, broken dreams, disappointments, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted the Son of God, you are in him. And if you are in him, the Lord is your Lord, God is your God, Jesus is your Savior, and you are a part of the bride of Christ. And our Jesus is always close to his hurting bride. So take comfort. No matter how low you get in this life, hear the promises of Scripture. Psalm 34, 17 to 19 says this to those who are broken in heart. It says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Remember that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And while God does do those things as he promises, while he delivers us and he's close to us in our sorrows and our pains, God's never absent. In order for Jesus to fully pay for the sins, to drink the cup, he had to be utterly forsaken by God which included being abandoned by his friends in his time of need. Which leads us to our second preaching point. Not only did Christ pray for God's will in his sorrows, Christ prayed for God's will even in his abandonment. Christ prayed for God's will in his abandonment. Verse 40 through 42, Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour, Peter? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, the cup, your will be done. Church, Jesus' situation, his circumstances had just gotten worse. It's another layer of pain. Can you imagine what the Son of God must have felt in that moment? He just had this serious time of guttural prayer, spilling his, his guts before the Lord, being honest, 
that type of moment, that type of prayer. You know what I'm talking about? He's having one of these moments, and he had these friends, these close three friends, his inner disciples who are supposed to be like the best of the group, right? The leaders of the group, per se. And he's like, just sit with me and pray with me. You're, like, You're my friends. You'll stand with me. And then he comes back and finds them sleeping. And Jesus' desperate hour, can you really pick what that would feel like? They were showing their indifference towards the Son of God, what he's going through. I'm sure we can make a thousand excuses for they were tired and didn't mean to. But man, that does not change the fact that I'm sure that hurt. And yet this was just the beginning. Their sleepy indifference will become total abandonment very soon. Temptation comes upon them when Christ is arrested and they all flee into the night, leaving our Lord alone with no friends to lean on or to rescue him. Church, our Jesus, our Jesus was truly alone in his most desperate hour of prayer. They were sleeping while he spilled his guts before the living God in earnest prayer. But even this was part of God's will for the Son. For the Messiah was to be abandoned by all, including God himself. Back to our Isaiah prophecy, picking up on verse 6 in chapter 53. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Psalm 22, the famous psalm quoted by Jesus on the cross. This is the beginning of that. Abandoned by his friends, soon to be abandoned by God himself. Jesus cries out eventually on the cross, only, only 12 hours away or less. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've never prayed that. I've never felt that. And I don't ever want to have to. But Jesus did. I cannot picture what that's like to have the creator of the universe who you have perfect harmony with turn away from you. Utter separation from God. Like, that's such a crazy idea to me, being Christian, being filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I think that I, I try to do a mind experiment. I'm like, okay, I think the closest thing I could think of today was, imagine if today God reached down and ripped the Holy Spirit out of you. I, I think something like that, I can't, I can't, how would you explain that? What would that like to feel lost again? What would that like to feel guilt and shame and misery and loneliness and anguish and separation from God again? I think something like that. This is what Jesus is going through, having everything ripped from him in that moment. Hasn't happened yet, but this is the beginning of it. Total abandonment. And it's going to happen. Prophecy will be fulfilled. And yet, the Son of God persevered in prayer. He prayed despite his devolving circumstances. He prayed despite the, the bitterness and the anguish of abandonment. Which teaches us an important lesson on God's will being first. It comes first even in the loneliest and lowliest times of our lives. 
abandonment, and lowliness can be for many reasons. Maybe it's because you took a righteous stand. Maybe you took a righteous stand for Christ and your friends, family, maybe even your employer have rejected you because of it. Maybe. Maybe you are the individual in the nursing home and you have no family that will ever visit you. Maybe you are a widow and the void left by your spouse hurts. Maybe you're the orphan waiting to be adopted, aching and wondering, why, why does anybody love me? Who will, who will want to be my parents? Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe you're the prisoner, no family to write you. They hate you for what you've done. Or maybe you're in isolation and don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you're that young person who aches for marriage and is willing to compromise Christian conviction just so you're not alone. Maybe you caused evil and people rightfully left you. Maybe that's true also. But church, whatever the reason, we all will find ourselves at some point of loneliness, lowliness, and misery. We will all feel something like this in our lives, some greater, some less. We can all relate to loneliness. And lonely people are vulnerable people. And if you're lonely today, you're in good company with the Son of God. He knows what that's like. And in that vulnerability that we face, we are prone to make the worst decisions. Lonely people tend to make the worst decisions. Loneliness is one of those catalyst sins that can take you down dark, dark places. It's easy to sin and compromise when you're lonely. Loneliness can lead to the bottle. Loneliness can lead to adultery, to pornography, to the dark places that no one should ever trod. Loneliness is one of those parallel catalyst sins. It's not a sin to be lonely, but loneliness is a highway to some dark, dark places if we let it take us there. And it will lead you into greater sin and greater misery if you act on loneliness. Therefore, we need to fall on our faces like Christ did. Have you ever really fallen on your face in prayer? Have you ever, when we say like your knees, we'll say that type of stuff, you know. But I'm serious. Have you ever actually fallen on your knees, fallen on your face and was like, God, you got to do something. If you have, you're in good company today because Jesus understands that. And we got to be like Christ, that despite our loneliness, we still need to pray. Man, I tell you, when we're just lonely, when we're sad, we're miserable. It's not fun to pray. We don't often want to pray when we're sad, lonely, and miserable. But we have to persevere in prayer because God's will comes first. And even in those loneliest moments, continually pray for God's will. He knows your aching heart, and he will keep you from yourself. He'll keep you from going down that path of destruction on your loneliness. He knows what you need to keep you floating. Don't let loneliness compromise your pursuit of God. And if that's you today, hear these promises from the scripture about the lonely in heart. Psalm 68, 4 through 6 says to the lonely, and it begins with worship. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. 
a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Church, not only does God take care of the lonely, Jesus Christ himself was forsaken and abandoned. So you would never be alone and without God in this life. And this we're going to read is probably the most important, one of the most important promises to the Christian life. God himself promises you, Christian, and anyone in this room who will trust in the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins. God says these words, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you believe that? What other hope do you have when you're that lonely than God is with you? These are not just mental uh, acceptance of truth. It's like, that's a heart thing. Do you believe that God is with you? But sadly, friends, Jesus wasn't only abandoned. He was also betrayed. And yet he still prayed. Our third and final preaching point. God's will comes first in all things. And we see Christ praying for God's will in his sorrows. Remember, we're talking about circumstances that might prevent us from praying. He prayed despite his sorrows. He prayed despite abandonment and loneliness. And he prayed for God's will even in his betrayal. Jesus prayed for God's will amidst his betrayal. Verse 43 to 46. He prayed for the second time. He comes back and it says, And again Jesus came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. He was praying for the same thing. You ever had that moment when there's nothing else you can possibly pray than God, your will be done? You're in good company if that's you. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And the next verse says, while Jesus was speaking these things, Judas arrived. So remember, this is simultaneously happening. Jesus is telling them to wake up. This is time. And as he's saying it, Judas and company come into the garden to arrest the Lord. Church, Jesus entered his third prayer session not only in great sorrow and anguish, not only in the face of painful abandonment and loneliness, but now he's facing real betrayal. For in a matter of minutes, Judas would arrive with his angry mob and arrest Jesus on a false pretense of blasphemy. But even this church was according to the plan for the Messiah. He was to be betrayed. Psalm 41 through 9 says prophetically, one verse says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus quotes this verse at the Last Supper, speaking of Judas. You know, I've always wondered about this, the Judas betrayal. I imagine that everyone, including Jesus, liked Judas. They, I'm sure they joked with him. They spent three years together. I'm sure they had a lot of fun times. They ate meals with Judas. Jesus trusted him enough, commissioned him as an apostle. And remember, Judas preached the gospel, telling the people of God to repent and trust in Jesus. He, he did miracles. 
He cast out demons. He did all the things Peter, James, and John, and everybody else did. Judas did that stuff. He was an apostle. Jesus trusted him, as the psalm said, the friend whom he trusted. And he was given a trust, a responsibility. He was an apostle. And not only that, Jesus entrusted Judas with the money bag, with the finances, and yet he was a thief. And you and I, that might blow our minds, like if God knows everything and Jesus clearly knows he's a thief and knows the hearts of all men, why would he do that? Why would he entrust him to be an apostle? Why would he entrust him to be the money carrier? Like, great question. You know, I imagine, and we know from Scripture, no one in the group thought Judas was a wicked man. Judas wore his mask perfectly. He played the part of a righteous man perfectly, which should be alarming to us. Not even the other apostles thought it was Judas. No one did. So much so that even at the Last Supper, when Jesus tells everybody, y'all, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, who is it? It's not me. It's not me. Who is it? And then he looks at Judas and says, go and do what you're about to do, friend. Even in that moment, no one thought it was Judas. He just told the group, like, he's going to get betrayed. And then he's like, go do what you're going to have to do. And Judas then leaves. Like, no one still thought it was Judas. That's how righteous he appeared. Think about that. He was trusted, a trusted friend. And now in this moment, the word of God was being fulfilled that Judas would lift his heel against the Messiah. And I would say, just because Jesus knew what was going to happen, I don't think it made the pain of his betrayal any easier. And yet, despite the pain, knowing this friend whom you've trusted is betraying you, Jesus still called upon God's will to be done. Which teaches us our third and final lesson for today about God's will being first. It comes first even when facing the sting and aftermath of real betrayal. For betrayal, church, is no light matter, especially when it comes to relationships that are supposed to be secure, like marriage. Adultery is a great betrayal. It's a great evil. And anyone who has ever had their spouse leave them can testify to that and the wounds it causes. And not only the wounds, but also the whirlwind of complex and painful emotions in the aftermath. Shock, loss, anger, hatred, resentment, shame, guilt, depression, bitterness. Like, betrayal brings it all, man. It brings out crazy things in our lives. And all of these things, as bad as they are, are not as bad as what betrayal can really do to the soul. Betrayal is the doorway to revenge. Betrayal can lead a man to revenge. I mean, think about it. There are so many countless books and stories and real-life events about betrayal and revenge because it happens. People act upon betrayal. Not always violent, but betrayal tends to lead us to violent ends. And this is why we need to pray for God's goodwill to intervene, to help prevent us from having our way 
with our adversary and respond to them to a fashion that is biblical. God's will is recorded in the Bible for how we're to treat our adversaries. God says to love and forgive our enemies and do good to them, to bless them and not curse them, to love those who hate you. Do you want to do that when that spouse leaves you? Do you want to love them and be good to them? That's a hard pill to swallow, right? It's easy to love people in like a non-personal sense, but when you're the victim of betrayal, I tell you probably the first thing you think about is like, oh, I want to bless them and do good to them. I don't think that's like right the first thing on our mind. That's a hard pill to swallow, but it's God's will for Christians to respond in such a way. So back to the adultery example, you can either seek to be continually spiteful and full of hate, where you do whatever you can to make your former treacherous spouse miserable, feeling good about it, like I'm going to stick it to that person. It doesn't have to be adultery, but that's a good example. You do whatever you can to make them miserable, and especially when children are involved, right? Oh, that's a pressure point when there's children involved in divorce, and you're like, I'm going to do whatever I can to keep you from seeing your children because you betrayed me. Guys, I've heard it. I'm sure you have friends that have gone through something like that. It's a real thing. Or if you're Christian, you can do the painful exercise of laying down your own wants, your own desires, your own will, and pray to do God's will and forgive even when every part of you hates that person. God commands us to forgive, to do good to those who hate us, to be a blessing and not a curse. So by asking for God's will to be done, you are inviting God in all circumstances, not just betrayal, but when you're asking God's will to be done, you're really asking for God's help to obey him. That's kind of what we're talking about. And he promises he's going to guide you through the pain. The Holy Spirit will remind you of the words of Scripture. The Holy Spirit will bring to your memory the things you've heard and will give you the strength encouragement, and the power to do the will of God. He'll put you in the path of other Christians when you're praying that way. It will help you. Praying for God's will is an all-encompassing help to obey the Father because Jesus said only those who will do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a serious thing. And in this moment, Jesus prays for God's will to be done. And let me ask you this. How does Jesus respond to Judas when he shows up? He called him his friend. At the dinner table, when he handed him the bread, he said, friend, go do what you're about to do and do it quickly. And then when he shows back up, he goes, hello, friend, paraphrase it. But essentially Jesus goes, hello, friend, you're back. And this is the hour that you're going to betray me coming true. Jesus prayed the will of God and Jesus demonstrated very clearly how we are to love our enemies. He loved Judas even while he betrayed him. And we are to do likewise. Church, God's will is always first. We, we read these scripture right here and we have a, a devolving scenario with Jesus. Things are getting worse. He's sorrowful. His friends are sleeping and abandoned him. He's getting betrayed and the gospel story is unfolding. Jesus' situation is getting quickly worse. Our lives may never parallel Jesus. We may never go through some of these awful things. But wherever you find yourself, no matter what circumstance you are in, pray the will of God. Pray God's will be done in every and all things. And we know, and we'll say it many times, the Bible says very, very clearly, when we are praying in the will of God, even when we don't know what to pray for, God promises to fulfill it. 
That's why the Lord's Prayer begins. The prayer that teaches us to pray begins with things like praying God's will be done on heaven and on earth. Like, it's how we're to learn to pray. God, your will be done. And that's really the takeaway from this type passage of Scripture. Don't let your circumstances dictate your prayer life. Because it's God's will anyway that we're going through whatever. So keep seeking. What other option do you have? Jesus said, whoever will enter the kingdom of heaven will do the will of my Father. Take that to heart. And as we come now to time of response, what areas of your life are you still not surrendering to the will of God? Where do you resist him, Christian? Or maybe not. Maybe things are good and you're in God's will and things are great. Beautiful. Continue to pray for God's will. Pray for your family to be in the will of God. Pray for your job. Pray for all the things to be aligning with God's will. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus and you're not tracking what we're talking about, the will of God for you is very simple. Repent, turn from your evil ways, turn from your sin, trust in this Jesus who died for you in your crimes against heaven, embrace his forgiveness, and become a part of the people of God. And you too can experience the greatest promise God gives us, that he will never leave us and never forsake us. So if you're at the end of your rope, let go, as cheesy as that may sound, as cliche as that may sound, let go and lay hold tightly of the Son of God and his cross. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will never be ashamed. Will you embrace Jesus today? And if you want to have a private conversation after church and talk about faith and talk about Christ, please find me. Your questions are important. And if you need to talk about God's will in your life and things aren't great, please come up for prayer. Please come and talk to one of us. But use this time wisely. Seek the Lord while it's called today. Amen? Let's pray, and then the altar time will be open. Lord Jesus, we come before you. If there's anything I said that was confusing or unclear, I pray that you would sort it all out in the hearts and the minds of the hearers, and that that simple message stand. God's will is always first, regardless of our circumstances. And I pray that you would give us the grace we need that no matter what we go through, to seek your face, ask your will be done, because your will is good. And you are good, and you are great, and you love us through your Son. Be with us in this time of response and prayer. Continue to glorify Christ and God's people said.